I'll be honest, this is probably one of the most difficult interviews I've done thus far. Not for the interview itself, but for the content it produced and the emotion it invoked inside of me. Vanessa had sent me an email at the beginning of the summer. She listened to all of my episodes and felt compelled to share her story with me. We emailed for several months, getting to know each other a little better through each correspondence, and then decided to schedule a phone call before a formal interview. I immediately noticed a trait in her that I had noticed inside of myself. Strong feelings of empathy. Now, I know, we're all human and the majority of us feel empathy and compassion, but there are some of us who feel it stronger than others. Empathy is a visceral experience of another person's thoughts and feelings from his or her point of view rather than from one's own. And I can tell you from experience that it's a double-edged sword, a blessing and a curse. It's the type of thing that when directed at the wrong person can result in manipulation and pain. I was no stranger to that, and neither was Vanessa. This is my first two-part episode. I went back and forth for several weeks trying to figure out how to meld two interviews into one, and well, I couldn't do it. We had one interview scheduled, which went extremely well, but there were some questions left unanswered. As my producer Jason and I began to chat about the first interview and unpack everything we learned, we still had some questions. I thought about going back to Vanessa and scheduling a follow-up call, but decided against it, at least until I had listened to the audio a few times over. Not 24 hours had passed when I received an email from Vanessa telling me that after our interview, she felt a clarity about her situation that she hadn't felt before. And she also felt that she'd glazed over some things. The same things Jason and I had questions about. Call it chance, kismet, coincidence. Whatever it is, it's the same thing that has driven me to keep this podcast going episode after episode. It's the same thread that weaves itself in and out of every story that has been shared on this podcast thus far. I'm Christina Hansen, and this is Penned. I'd love to just start with the question that I ask all my guests. How did you start writing to inmates? Well, I read a book called Hell is a Very Small Place, and it's essays written by people who were in solitary confinement, and they were harrowing and heart-wrenching, and it moved me very deeply. And not that I wasn't aware that this went on, it brought it very much into my heart. And I wanted to reach out and to one of these people, of which there are so many in this country. And so I did. I started writing to someone who is ostensibly in solitary, but no longer in solitary. So he passed my name along to someone else who wanted someone to write to. He had already found a pen pal and again was no longer in solitary, but it didn't matter. I just felt it was important to connect with someone on the inside because it just seemed so isolating and so sad, especially these individuals who are serving life without parole sentences. And I wanted to connect. I wanted to bring some work to someone. And I guess looking back on it, as well, I wanted warmth for my own life, and this felt very doable to me in a way that hadn't been possible with people on the outside. So I think that's what drew me to it. And the more I 
kept up with his correspondence, the more I wanted to be in it and that it felt very safe and very gratifying, if that makes sense. I know people who don't want to think about these things can't imagine that, but it was very, very satisfying to me. And yeah, brought a lot of warmth into my life that was missing. You know, you said two things that really struck me. You mentioned twice warmth in your, into your life. I'm curious what that means. Kind of an uninhibited connection with not a lot of holding back of feeling and just uninhibited connection that almost seems impossible in the outside world because as we all have our guard up so often and just the impersonality of the technological age and I don't know, it just letter writing begets warmth in my experience if it's in there to begin with and it was in my heart and it's something that I so desperately wanted to share with someone who wanted and needed it. Do you have a lot of people in your life? Do you have a lot of friends or close family connections and people that bring warmth into your life currently? I actually don't. I'm pretty alienated from my family and my friends. I have a few very close friends. That's about it. Um, I've kept myself pretty solitary. Intimacy has always been an issue for me just because of the way I grew up. And it kind of lent itself to me being very protective of myself as an adult and very wary. So I don't have a lot of people in my life, honestly. I'm curious how you grew up that has made you so protective about your life. You know, I understand that a lot of people go through so many different experiences with that, but I'd like to know what that means to you. Sure. I grew up with a lot of abuse and that was pretty unrelenting for my entire childhood and into adolescence. And I think that does something to your brain and not only that, but to your ability to connect to others in a way that feels gratifying and normal and <laughs> fulfilling. I've always been isolated. And I mean, when I think back, you know, in high school, I mean, I had friends, but I was never one of those normal high school kids. <laughs> I mean, I went to college, I went to law school. I mean, I kind of made my life happen. And I did all the right things externally, but inside, I think there was a lot of sadness, a lot of loneliness, and a lot of fear. It feels like a hole, but in, in my mind, it feels like a hole that can never and will never be filled. And I like to kind of look at my life that way. I mean, it sounds defeated, but I think it's not because I'm still here and I'm still searching, but I do have an awareness of some sort that it is never going to be filled in the way that I would hope. Were there times throughout your life that you've thought that you filled this hole? I think very few, maybe the few times I've been in love and thought that it might work out. That was always short-lived, though. <laughs> um, that feeling, you know, I mean, the relationships usually lasted for a while until they didn't. How long was your longest relationship? 
my longest relationship was about three years. I was in my early 30s. But as I said, fairly early on, it wasn't going to last. It just took me a while to extricate myself from it. And in a way that I just didn't feel able to leave it. Two and a half years later, I finally was out. Just early on, I just recognized it was not going to work. And I don't know really why. It's just something that didn't feel right anymore. So early on when I asked you about how you started writing to inmates, the other thing that struck me was that you mentioned the word safe. And I've heard that before, and I think that's really interesting to me because people don't always associate the word safe with an inmate. And I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you felt safe in that correspondence with this inmate. I knew he would never be on the outside, which, I mean, most people would think, oh, but don't you want him to get out and be with you and you can live your life out with one another? And I, my honest answer to that is no, that feels really frightening to me. But letter writing and visiting and the occasional phone call, that feels very manageable to me. I'm very safe emotionally and and sexually, you know, like I'm not going to be violated. And that was very important to me. Is that something that really scares you in a relationship? Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy for me to give up my power. And that's the way I was brought up to essentially have none and no agency. And when I get involved on the outside, I lose it so quickly. And I lose myself and I lose my feeling of control over myself, my body. I don't want that in my life anymore. And so writing to Tyler just felt so different and like, wow, I can share all this really good stuff and I don't have to have all that icky, scary stuff that I've had to deal with on the outside. And it it felt I thought, wow, I can have love in my life. I don't have to live out my life alone because I wasn't going to let anyone on the outside in anymore. I just had it. That was done. So tell me a little bit about Tyler. I'd like to learn more about the connection that you've had that made you feel all of these things that you couldn't feel with anybody on the outside. Well, he's 15 years younger than me. And he wrote very kind, sweet letters to me. And he didn't push boundaries and seemed genuinely happy to hear from me and loved my writing. And he is in life without parole and grew up very, had a difficult upbringing. And when I saw his picture, I think... I just felt like my heart went out to him. I just felt I understood what his life had been like. And I wanted to help bring warmth into his own life. And at that point, someone gave him my name. And so it's not like I picked him on a website. So I didn't even know what he looked like. But I got the letter and then I looked him up and I saw the picture. And I just, my heart just... It broke and melted at the same time. 
I remember that moment really well on the computer. Why did it break? And why did it melt? It broke because I could see the pain in his own life and identified with it and melted because it just drew me in that identification, I think, and also just the compassion that I felt for him looking at that image. I know I'm probably probably projecting a bit, I I mean, in respect, but at some moment I didn't feel that. I just felt, I want to bring something good to your life, and it looks like it's been pretty crappy, and I want to be the good in your life. And that's what I felt. So life without parole. So that's a pretty heavy sentence. What was he in prison for? First degree murder. And yeah, it's an awful sentence. It should never be allowed because it takes away hope and should never take hope away from someone. But it is allowed and that's what he has. Did he go into his crime? Did he tell you about his story at all? He did not. He referenced it obliquely, and I looked it up, and I found the case filings and the the court transcript and all that, so I knew about it. It was pretty horrible, and just horrible in that this happened in an instant, and it's so tragic. It's like him, it just didn't have to happen, and his life didn't have to change, but he made us not decision, which is how so many of these crimes happen. You lose your mind for an instant, and then your life is over. And so that's what, to me, is horrible. Yeah, it's amazing how one moment can change the course of your entire life forever. And it's kind of scary, right? Yeah, very much so. Now, I know that his story of what happened isn't necessarily your story. However, I do believe that it is a part of your story now. Could you go into a little bit of the details that you've found about his crime? Yeah. I mean, the parts that I feel are relevant to to how I felt connected to him because he's working on his appeal. So he's accused of murder because he believed his life was threatened and he killed the person who he thought, or he is accused of killing the person he thought could make the call that would end his own life. He was found guilty in about two hours by a jury. Wow, two hours. Yeah. So, I mean, the evidence was pretty overwhelming. It's hard. But I know that feeling, I mean, if you grow up in a certain way, you something can trigger you and you can feel a really a disproportionate sense of danger to what's actually in before you. I mean, I know I'm trying to justify what might have happened, but I think a lot of murders, whether he's guilty or not, are committed because of fear that's disproportionate to the actual threat at hand and because all the stuff that we bring to any given moment really affects how you react to that trigger, whatever it might be. Now, 
you mentioned earlier that you you studied law. So going through these documents, you know, doing your digging and uncovering his story in the way that you did, do you feel that he is guilty? And did that change your mind about him at all? No, he is guilty. And that didn't change my mind at all. And I think it didn't matter to me. I mean, I knew whoever I was writing was going to be guilty of whatever they did. I think the justice system works pretty well most of the time. I mean, 95% of the time. In some states, less so, but this is not one of them. And no, it didn't. I guess some people would say, oh, you're in denial in thinking how grave an act this is. But I don't know. I don't have any judgment about it. It happened and it just happened. I don't, it's really sad that it happened, but I don't think any less of him as a human being. And I never really thought about it when I wrote to him. It was the crime was just like not in the forefront of my mind at all. And that's what happens when you do write to people who are inside. I don't think it was a crime at all. Maybe that's naive, but I don't think it's naive. I think it's human. Let's talk a little bit about your correspondence with Tyler. You mentioned that the first letter you got from him was, it touched you in in some way. And it almost seems like there was an instantaneous connection, at least on your end. So tell me a little about that. It was just like he said he was reaching out. I don't know if you want to write to me, but if you do please write back. And if not, please take care and have a wonderful day. And I don't know, it felt very genuine to me. And I wrote back. Did you intend to form a romantic relationship? I didn't intend it on a conscious level. Perhaps part of me intended or hoped it would go there on a conscious level. I just wanted a connection and I wanted to be there for someone. I didn't really think about, I wanted someone to be there for me, you know. I I do think looking upon it, I know that it was just as much for me as for him. So how long did you correspond before you started to feel romantically about Tyler? About seven months. I didn't say anything about how I felt and then he wrote I'm falling in love with you. I hope that's okay. It felt really good to read those words. And then it just kind of accelerated. And we were able to talk on a whole new level of like love and feelings. It just kind of up the degree of intensity and also the content of what we were writing about. I would imagine there was a level of intimacy that developed pretty quickly after he shared his feelings for you. Is that correct? And if so, could you tell me a little bit about that? I guess I started to feel safer sharing more things. I felt he did as well. I believe, in retrospect, I felt the intimacy a lot more than he did. I was really hoping he meant what he said because I took his words to heart and I wrote, Accordingly, I, the intimacy of the relationship seemed to intensify, at least for me. In retrospect, I'm not sure that that happened for him, but it sort of, it seemed that it was, or at least I thought I saw that in his writing, but maybe perhaps not. 
I'm saying this in retrospect because of how it all turned out. At what point during this correspondence did it take a turn? After I went to visit him for the first time, I believe it changed. And the letter I got right before I visited him was probably the nicest letter I've ever gotten in my life. How he's never felt this way before and how special I am. And I mean, everything you want to hear from someone who you're in love with. And and I was going to see him in seven days. And so I went to see him and he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. And then I didn't hear from him for two and a half months. I was really devastated. So he asked you to marry him. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I mean, he had to have felt something, right? In your mind, I mean, really in anybody's mind, you don't just propose marriage without feeling the feelings of love, <laughs> right? I, I guess. I don't know. It took me by surprise. I mean, we had not met before. This was our first meeting in person. He had said in one of his letters, when I see you, um, I need to ask you something. And I didn't even think about marriage as being one of the things he would ask. I just thought he wanted to ask me something about my life and he felt it was not appropriate in a letter. Yeah, that's what he did. And I guess maybe he did have feelings for me. I don't know. But why would you ask someone to marry you and then kind of drop out of sight for a couple of months? I mean, after a pretty steady correspondence. I don't know. It was really confusing and really painful. Were you giving him anything as far as money goes? Or did you keep it strictly just you were sharing your feelings through letter writing. I did. I was putting money on his commissary after he told me that he was falling in love with me. I began to put money on his commissary. Actually, it was December. So I think I put money before he said that because it was Christmas time. And he had sent me a letter without a stamp, meaning he was indigent. And so I put money on his commissary. And that was the first time I had done that. I don't recall whether he told me he was in love with me before or after. At this point, it really doesn't doesn't matter. I don't want to sound cynical or anything, but do you think that maybe in some way he was starting to see an opportunity here and maybe cashing in on that a little bit, which maybe led to this idea of, well, maybe if I ask her to marry me, I can be taken care of a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. How could I not? (laughs) It would be naive of me not to think that that was a possibility. I mean, the letters, too, and I knew that they were coming when I got paid. I knew they were coming like the week I was paid, and that coincidence wasn't lost upon me. But I continued with the writing as though this were the real thing. And I continued putting money on his account. 
And, you know, you can ask someone to marry you when you're in prison because it never has to actually come to pass. So, I mean, you know, you could keep writing that one for a while. Maybe you didn't expect me to say yes. He's like, oh, my God, she's really serious here. And I had moved to be closer to where he was incarcerated. And yeah, I lost my apartment. So it wasn't the impetus for me to move, but I could choose any location. And I chose to move so I could be in proximate distance from where he was imprisoned. So yeah, in answer to your question, yes. And Had you shared with him that you were going to move closer to him? I did. How did he feel about that? I did share it with him and I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks after I told him. And I wrote him and I said, I'm not sure why I haven't heard from you. Are you thinking because I'm moving closer to where you are? Is that scaring you? And I said, please don't let that scare you because it's a great place. And if things don't work out between us, I'm going to be in a beautiful city. So I'll make my life work there. And, you know, we will have tried. I think that gave him some relief in some way and took the pressure off. And then we started writing again on a more regular basis. Kind of going back to this idea of safety in the relationship, did the idea of potentially marrying this man compromise that safety at all? No. Again, I believed he was never getting out. So I didn't feel unsafe. In fact, it gave me the freedom to be happy about it and to be excited that someone would want me as his wife. I believe if we were on the outside, I would not have felt that same joy and anticipation and happiness. Is that something that you talked about after he proposed? And did you say, you know, I'll, well, we can get officially married here and I can come on this date and we could do this? Did you talk about the details at all? I literally didn't hear from him at all after I left the prison that day. And in that conversation, when he asked me to marry him, I said, yes, we, on to the next conversation (laughs) topic, you know, we didn't talk about details and then I didn't hear from him. And when I did hear from him, he, he did mention me being his wife. He hadn't given up on that idea, but I was very wary at that point for someone to go so silent, especially after what he had brought up in our visit. Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, you go from one extreme to really the other. And what are you supposed to think? (laughs) You know, how are you supposed to trust this person? So at that point, after you hadn't heard from him for a couple months, what happened? I just closed up and I mourned. I didn't put the relationship in any box. I didn't think, oh, he was using me or, oh, you know, when he saw me, he realized he didn't want to be with me or anything like that. I didn't have any of those feelings. I just felt heartbroken because I had been in love. Whether he was or not, I don't know, but 
I was and not hearing from someone after they asked you to marry them was pretty, pretty difficult. Have you heard from him since or has it been completely silent? So that was, um, I did, I did hear from him and he told me he had been working on his appeal and he was really sorry that he had been out of touch. But again, as I mentioned, he, he said, I still want you to be my wife and took some time before writing back. And I, I, I said, well, um, it was very confusing for me not to hear from you, especially after proposing to me. And I didn't know what happened. So right now I think I can just be your friend. I didn't hear from him. And his silence to me speaks volumes. I can imagine what he's thinking. And he didn't want just a friend. And so we worked through that for about four months back and forth. And I acknowledge finally that my feelings for him were still there. And I had repressed them out of self-protection. I wanted to love him again, and I wanted him to love me. And yes, I will be your woman again. And we started working on building that. And in the interim, I had taken myself off his visitor's list. He sent me a new application, and we started that process over again, which was very difficult because... They were like, well, you took it yourself off it once. We're not going to let you back on right now because, you know, you had a good reason. Which felt kind of um, infantilizing. You know, I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. And that was the way that prison was run anyway. So we didn't have visits. We just had letters. And then he was transferred to another location and was much further away from me. I applied to be on his visitor list and was approved pretty quickly. It's a different administration, kind of different mindset in that location. So I began to make plans to visit, which would involve air travel and renting a car and a little bit more involved logistically. And then I got a letter from him, that, which essentially was don't ever write to me again <laughs> and and that reframed the entire relationship for me because if he could be so cold and so dismissive after everything then felt it really made me question the entire relationship and I did <laughs> and looking back on it I kind of knew it was a fantasy, but I also wanted it to be real. As I wrote to you, I felt there was this cognitive dissonance going on, just holding these two separate realities because I so desperately wanted it to be true and, you know, explaining away all of the things that would make me question, you know, like the timing of the letters coming right before payday and sometimes the long periods of no communication, I would explain it away and rationalize and make excuses for him. 
I mean, these were all going on at the same time that I was writing these passionate, beautiful letters to him. So it's just so, it's just so strange to have two realities happening at once, but they were. I feel bad for him that I'm sure it was hard for him to write that letter. I mean, like he wrote it. I mean, it was like, don't correspond with me anymore, but you have a heart of gold. I mean, and that's one of the things that I loved about him was that he has this hardness, but yes, he has a softness as well. I wasn't the right person for him. I think he thought moving to a different location, I I wouldn't make that effort to come see him. And when I did, he had to just, he had to just, just lay it on the line. And I mean, he didn't tell me I'm not in love with you. He, he manufactured something which I now don't believe. And when I talked with Another person about it seemed pretty obvious to me it was manufactured, but it's okay because I know that he was trying to spare my feelings, or at least I expect he was doing that and maybe trying, you know, some time down the road, he might need me for something, <laughs> whether it's money or, or correspondence, I don't know, but he was preserving the relationship in some way by not saying fuck off forever. He didn't do that. And there was some consolation in that. The thing I really appreciate about you, first of all, is that you are very self-aware. And I think that takes a very special type of person to look at a situation from the outside looking in. And not very many people are able to do that. So that takes a lot. And I do appreciate that about you. When you talk about him and when you're, you're telling me these stories, you still have to me, still a sense of compassion towards him, which is beautiful. But is there a part of you that is angry and angry that he took advantage of you or angry that he took things from you, angry that he played upon your feelings? Is there, do you ever feel that? I don't. I think the part of me that wanted to reach out to someone who's incarcerated in the first place it's that same person who's like, how can I fault him? He has nothing. He's in prison for the rest of his life. And these guys ha- mostly come from families who don't have a lot of money. And yeah, he maybe used me and preyed upon my loneliness and my, you know, I told them my background, my history with my family there's a huge deprivation in there. And if he needed what he needed, you know, to get by so he could buy shaving cream and snacks so he doesn't have to go to the town hall every day or three times a day, that's okay. I'm I'm okay with all of what happened. I'm not angry. I'm sad. I'm sad because I wish it could continue. I wish it was real. Looking back on it, I don't think it was real. He was the bigger one <laughs> to say, stop. The money was still coming when he sent me the letter, you know. He had the decency to say, stop. I I can't correspond with you anymore. And the way he framed it, it was in such a way that I could not question it. And that's okay with me. I'm not angry. Do you believe that he is a good person deep down inside? despite all of this? Yes, I do. 
I do. I don't think anyone is truly evil. I mean, I think that that's a misconception held by people who have a more dichotomous view of the world. I mean, there are some people who are truly sick and twisted and do horrible things and are in prison for them. But no, he's a good person who drew some pretty bad straws in life. And like I said, in one instant, his path just, it completely, it switched to a completely different way of, if that moment hadn't happened, he could have been okay and still been on the outside and living. I think he's a good person. Yes, I do. And I think when you're in prison, you have to be resourceful. And maybe he knew that on some level I knew too. I don't know. He was, he's very smart. Because I mentioned this a couple of times. I said, look, Tyler, I mean, I haven't heard from you I want to be by your side. I don't believe I'm one of these women who's living in a fantasy. And I conveyed an awareness that there are people, women who do get very caught up in something like this and believe it's real and hold on to it for dear life. And I was doing that. I conveyed to him that I knew that kind of person was out there, uh, although I was differentiating myself from those people. I want to ask you what you've learned about yourself from this and how has your life changed because of this relationship? I learned that I'm still capable of loving someone. I've learned how how dearly I want to be loved as well and be integral to someone else's life. Those are two big things, I think two hopeful things. Has this situation changed how you will write to inmates in the future? And will you continue to write to inmates in the future? Yes. I started a correspondence with someone and we've been writing for several months right now and taking it very slowly. And I think I have a much sharper awareness for for BS. When I started writing again a few months ago, I wrote to a few people at first and the BS meter was very aware and I was able to cut myself off from those people pretty quickly. You know, when they ask for you to send pictures of your house and their appeal and how they're going to be out soon. And these are all people in life without parole just the red flags I was able to see pretty quickly. This one person that I am writing now, I have not seen any red flags and it feels really good. And I feel like I'm developing strong feelings for him and believe he's returning them. So (laughs) it feels good. You only write to inmates that have life without parole, correct? Yeah. And will that change? Mm-mm. No, that won't ever change. If things don't work out with this person, that would never change. Do you share this with the close friends in your life that you have? Do you share this part of your life? I share it with one friend. 
if she doesn't have any judgment about it. I broached a subject with two other friends and they have some judgment around it. So I didn't share very much about it, but with one friend, uh, I tell her everything and she's very supportive and very non-judgmental. I'm grateful for that. So where do you go from here? Well, I'm in this beautiful city and I have a really good job and I'm writing someone who I'm falling for and who seems to be falling for me. And so things are pretty good. Yeah, it feels, it feels good. It feels okay. This is what works for me. And I think I'm blessed to have discovered that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be connecting on a deep level with anyone, you know, romantically. And I'm also being there for someone else who wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise. I don't have a lot of opportunities to be people. It's not a bad place where I'm in and I'm actually looking forward to tomorrow, you know? Yeah. That's that's great. And it's really interesting that you say that this works for you. And I think that's one of those aspects that people don't think about when they think of love, right? Or a relationship. And a relationship is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. People have different relationships than I do or that, you know, my neighbor does, What you know, whatever. But I think this is really interesting and your perspective is very interesting because, you know, you're very solid in the way that this works for you and you're proud of it. And you know that this works for you. Yes, I am. I feel blessed that I've discovered something that works for me because life felt very lonely before that. You know, my empty relationships and the things that just didn't work for me on the outside. Do you have any questions for me at all? No, at this point, I just appreciate that. You're not judgmental either. And that's what's enabled me to speak so freely about my life. And I appreciate that. Thank you. As with all of my interviews on the show, each guest bravely shares their story of their individual correspondence with an inmate. It's not an easy thing to do, and I always keep that in mind. However, with Vanessa, I felt like I needed a little bit more from her. I wanted to know the details of Tyler's crime from her perspective. Why? Well, we've kept his identity private on the show, but Vanessa did share the details with me in our unrecorded call. She also shared public court documents that detailed the grisly crime. I think it's important to try and understand how people can separate the crime from the person. For many, it's hard to do, but for people who can empathize stronger than others, it may come more naturally. On the next episode of Pent. I think that's important for me to tell you the details. And, and I'll tell you them and we can decide later if it feels too scary to have public. Is that okay? 
This episode was produced by Jason Sisoyev. And special thanks to Matthew Street for creating Penn's theme music. If you or someone you know has a story to share, please send me a note at pendpodcast.com.